You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industry. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everyone. Today, my guest is Kaivan Alikani, and he is the CEO and founder of Compliance.ai, which is a really revolutionary tool for automated compliance, and he's going to tell us all about it. So welcome to the show, Kaivan. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Paris. Nice meeting you. Would you would you tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. Uh, we started uh, Compliance.ai in 2017 um, with the objective of helping compliance risk and uh, audit managers and directors at uh, specifically banks, financial services, and insurance organizations to get a handle on the volume, velocity, and complexity of regulatory changes that were happening around them at various jurisdictions, whether it was local, federal, international, independent uh, agencies, be able to monitor, track, react, and report on changes on a uh, much more consistent, scalable basis than what they were doing before. Mm -hmm. And before Compliance AI, what, what was the typical way that a compliance officer would keep up with the regulatory changes happening and affecting their, their business? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very, very typical uh, for a mid to large sized uh, regulated organization is to use manual homegrown um, methods of collecting content uh, directly from sites, scraping Google, relying on newsletters, looking at uh, manual outside counsel as a way to gain that regulatory insight and then using tools like Microsoft Excel to do line by line analysis of the changes that have happened to determine relevancy. Uh, to assess compliance, to assess um, gap analysis, impact analysis, and all the other activities. And reporting uh, typically is uh, much more difficult than a typical root canal, you know, kind of going through the motions of being able to collect all the information from various stakeholders only to produce something that should be very readily available to them. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is that the, the financial managers of these companies had to go out and seek that information. The onus was on them to find any changes, find out how it affected them, if at all, interpret it the right way, and then take action on it. So if they fail to do that, or if they just missed something, they could be putting themselves at a lot of risk, I suppose. It's a um, time-consuming process. It's error-prone due to the manual nature of it. It's also not scalable uh, because what ended up happening post.frank is really what a lot of our users uh, refer to tsunami or some of them uh, explosion, others to uh, avalanche of changes that came their way. If you're operating in the United States, um, offering commercial banking or insurance solutions at, uh, I don't know, four or five states and you're in growth mode, you're continuing to expand your jurisdiction, you're probably getting three to 400 regulatory change documents all the way from proposal rules, notices, and all the way up to enforcement actions and everything in between per week. 
And this um, leads into a situation where you have to read these documents because they're not news documents or blurbs about uh, sports matches. These are usually legally warded, legally binding documents with very specific implementation uh, deadlines uh, with specific common close dates or um, uh, dates of going into effect, effective dates that these organizations have to pay attention to. And so the volume mm -hmm. uh, went that in that way. In addition to that, you had the complexity go off the charts. Uh, mm -hmm. Concepts like, like cybersecurity, privacy, ICO, cryptocurrency, blockchain, even fintech 10 years ago, really to the level of um, complexity that we see that did not exist. And uh, also the differences between levels of jurisdiction, how state of California is dealing with privacy versus EU versus New York versus the rest of the United States is very, very different right now. There's different privacy rules. And you can apply that to pretty much any uh, level of rule or regulation, which made it more important for organizations that operate at different jurisdictions to have a very clear understanding of how these changes not just affect them in one jurisdiction, but across different um, locations as well. I got you. You mentioned something there which, which I didn't quite understand. You said post dot Frank or something like this. I didn't know. Uh, what were, what were you referring to? Yeah, uh, during the uh, recession, um, you, you remember the Dodd-Frank uh, set of uh, rules? Oh, yes, Dodd-Frank, uh, Dodd the two senators, right? Or um, Yes, yes, the actual leaders that came uh, as a result of that and the creation of CFPB as a result of that and the uh, increase in terms of scrutiny and uh, the types of tests that the organizations needed to do in various mm -hmm. uh, forms were all as a result of that. But obviously... Um, Subsequent to that, states have become also significantly more active and more prescriptive in terms of rules and regulations. And um, mm -hmm. uh, the Fed also, uh, both at a um, OCC, Fed, and Treasury and CFPB level and at the level of enforcement actions in terms of FINRA and other organizations, has very much become much more specific and particular about um, uh, what rules they outline, how frequently they, they came come out, uh, around what topics and also the enforcement actions that ensue. And can you remind me, when when was Dodd-Frank passed? 2000, uh, I want to say eight years ago during the Obama administration. So um, the year uh, escapes me right now, but it must be over the past 10 years. Okay, gotcha. Um, and, and at its core, it's a Consumer Protection Act. Am I right? Um, it's also with it comes a set of tests and new rules and regulations that requires the banks to adhere to a certain set of um, regulations, basically, that uh, tells them what they can and cannot do, how they can and cannot operate. And it sets uh, some bars in terms of uh, size of organizations, in terms of assets under management, um, for which the organizations have to look at to see what they need to do when they are at a specific size. Okay, I understand. Uh, ironically, I'm, I'm consumer protection was uh, the CFPB was very much a byproduct uh, of the activity that happened post recession, as you may remember. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm right now. I'm reading Obama's latest book, The Promised Land, and I'm right somewhere around the middle. And he has he's a few months into the his first term, grappling with the financial crisis, and um, I haven't gotten yet to the the Chris Dodd. Because I think it's probably one and a half or two years into his first term, but now I'm going to be looking out for that, and that's a that's a nice refresher. And I remember when that was passed. And so, 
you were trying to 2010 uh, i just wanted to clarify 2010 okay yeah so now it's a yeah 10 10 years in um and you you founded the company in 2017 so about seven years after this act was passed what was the uh why why in 2017 why then and uh, what was the what was the need that you saw at that point in the market you know from one side we see the um good level of digitization of regulations which didn't which didn't exist until four or five years earlier um the second big trend of course being that banks started becoming more and more receptive towards uh automated SaaS based solutions uh the whole rise of fintech or um, later the formation of a new set of solutions that were becoming more and more accepted or let's say uh, raised a good level of curiosity by uh, these organizations in terms of uh, the ability to buy uh, software solutions, business solutions, buy the drink on a SaaS basis and not necessarily own, manage, maintain, upgrade and update software on your own. And um, obviously the increase in terms of pace and uh, volume and velocity where we started seeing a good number of changes coming uh, towards these users. And lastly, the maturity of um, an availability, affordability, if let's just call it, of GPUs and uh, processing power that allows for the creation of purpose-built machine learning-based models uh, for these types of solutions. So if you think about the combination of those trends, volume, complexity, acceptability of um, uh, SaaS-based solutions, and the affordability and maturity, of ML-based um, modeling tools that took advantage of specifically text processing and natural language processing to be able to um, process a vast number of documents, extract uh, key metadata and uh, classi perform classification on the documents, on the fragments of the documents, and then present that to the users in a way that um, helps them. I would also tell you the biggest uh, aspect, one of the things that really caught my eye around that time frame was the amount of money that was being spent by specifically banks, financial service and insurance companies around just managing compliance. It continues to be the number one spend uh, within these organizations above and beyond R&D and M&A and marketing and everything else. It's risk and compliance. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And is, you, is that a reflection of simply the cost of the, of the infractions? I mean, the, if the fines are so massive, um, is that what, why you've got to maintain that kind of investment? That's one side of it. The, uh, the bottom line, $360, $70 billion plus in, in form of enforcement actions and fines that have been issued just in the past eight to 10 years, just around banking financial services oh, wow. is a substantial number. But the other side of it is the uh, fact that you keep throwing bodies at this problem. This problem is growing and you keep trying to solve mm -hmm. it through manual uh, homegrown techniques. And we know the individuals that you'll need to hire or train or keep maintain uh, or uh, the outside counsel that you need to continually use is not cheap. These are typically mm -hmm. the most expensive professional services uh, individuals, uh, either from a consulting or from an employment perspective. And um, frankly, it's just not scalable. Um, so uh, I think that, yeah, the, the reason for the increase has got to do a lot with also from the other side is the increase in terms of uh, the bar that uh, mm -hmm. the regulations are setting for these organizations. So it's a, it's, it's multiple uh, aspects of it, but risk and compliance continues to be. And of course, you you know, um, the uh, aside from compliance, there's the risk aspect and cybersecurity mm -hmm. plays a big role as well. 
Yeah, and it seems to me that that problem has really gotten bigger in the last in the last few years. Uh, cybersecurity and issues around ransomware, um, especially in the last year or so, with uh, remote work taking on so much more importance. The vulnerabilities of remote workers are such that I think the bad actors in the cybersecurity world had all sorts of new opportunities. Um, I, we've certainly seen this too. So I yeah, guess it's kind of remember a, that. Uh, no, sorry, go ahead, please. It seems to be like there was one wave followed by another wave in your space, which is the the first wave is that finally the the banks are ready to address this huge inefficiency of having to always throw more and more people at a problem. And they're more open to, to turning to a SaaS-based solution. And then in the last, say, one and a half to two years or so, you've got this rapid increase in cybersecurity, which are putting their customers more at risk and their systems at risk. Um, am I right? I mean, there, there was kind of like a couple of, a couple of waves that really are... Well, they're ongoing. Cybersecurity continues to be an issue. However, there's also an intersection, interestingly, for compliance and privacy, uh, privacy and cyber in terms of the fact that if you were a business operating, let's say in California, four or five years ago, um, and you were not a good guardian of people's credentials, um, nobody's business, you get breached, um, and so so what? And you know, people's username, password, or credentials, or private, um, you know, uh, information was revealed. Uh, now, uh, with the California Consumer Protection Act, which became a right act, we voted into law this November uh, as a uh, rights, consumer rights uh, act, um, now you are liable. And in fact, you can be fined and sued uh, for lack of adequate protection uh, of that private information, for um, lack, of inadequ- uh, lack of adequate retention, protection. And um, as you know, uh, with GDPR, there's different levels of security required, even from a right to be forgotten from a cyber perspective, you get hacked three years later, I'm not your consumer, why are you holding on to my data? And now you can actually be fined for not mm-hmm. having done that. So now you have an intersection and rules to ultimately govern uh, the enforcement of um, those privacy-related rules that led to cybersecurity challenges. So yeah. companies are now much more accountable uh, for lack of cybersecurity measures in their organization. That's kind of an intersection uh, of the two. Yeah. Do you predict that other states will soon follow suit from California's CCPA? And how fast do you think that's going to roll out to basically all all 50 states? I think uh, we are seeing at least uh, uh, 10 states actively working on similar consumer privacy measures. And uh, there's also federal level um, activity, Mm -hmm. which is really the right way to look at this. Um, Because of the complexity of it, you do not want to create a checkered list of 50 states with 50 different uh, privacy requirements for data protection and data collection and retention. Um, and I think that uh, we saw elements of that during um, the pandemic where Congress and Senate were basically the, the, both at the Senate and at the House, they were looking at uh, comparable um, responses in terms of providing privacy regulations or in, in um basically um, enacting rules and regulations that had more to do with how do you collect information about your employees as it relates to COVID, as it relates to uh, their privacy. And so if you look at that kind of zoom out two or three levels, it's really not just COVID that should be looked at um, or data collection for the perspective of health uh, care uh, perspective, but also from any 
perspective and not just employees, but also the users that you're interacting with. So um, that and those types of issues are very much in the works. And I think probably over this next uh, three to five years, we are going to see either comprehensive uh, rules and regulations at the federal level from a consumer privacy perspective, or as you said, the continuation of probably 10 plus states um, putting into place their own consumer privacy and consumer rights acts. Yeah. I remember GDPR when it happened in Europe, I think it was maybe two years ago, maybe, but I was pretty sure that uh, the, the U S will, will follow suit. And it didn't surprise me that California led the way on that one, but I, I definitely see it as inevitable. And I think that at the federal level, there, there needs to be a uniformity to it at some point. Otherwise you will have certain States become sort of havens of, uh, I don't know, either moving, moving servers there or having that, the, the states without compliance or with looser compliant regulations becoming the places of legal, I don't know, storage of, of information, which to me seems like a big cat and mouse game. So I think, I think probably a GDPR style federal regulation is appropriate here. And it yeah, seems to be yeah, the mood, the mood mm-hmm. is there to do it. Completely agreed. In fact, um, you mentioned California two twofold. One side is obviously tech center in Silicon Valley and the number of services that do, in fact, hold on to uh, people's data and do collect that type of information. It's a very much a, a hotbed of that. And of course, uh, what is it now? 40 million Californians. So the population uh, also will then help move uh, other states to where that if you're doing business in California, if you maintaining any uh, residents of California's data as a business operating anywhere. Now you're subject to CCPA. Mm-hmm. So let's pivot over into the marketing side of things a little bit now. I'm very interested uh, as to how you get this product out, out to market now, because it sounds like there's a, uh, there's a huge market opportunity. First, how, how would you describe your ideal customer profile? Who is the primary buyer of compliance.ai? Very much the chief compliance officer or the office of the general counsel, um, individuals who are responsible for researching, uh, reacting and reporting on changes as they're happening. They have a um, very much a mandate, very much an incentive and a big problem in front of them that they need to solve. Uh, Large organizations typically are uh, ones that we think we can serve best because they deal with a higher level of complexity across different jurisdictions across different products, concepts, and topics. And so I would say um, chief compliance officer, GC at organizations, a billion dollars and above in assets under management operating in multiple jurisdictions would be uh, the type of mm-hmm. organization that would benefit from compliance study the most. Mm-hmm. I did a little bit of research leading up to this, and I was looking at some keywords, some keyword research around terms like compliance software or financial services compliance software, that that term has a $55 target cost per click. Uh, are, you playing the, are you playing the paid search game, um, which to um, me seems the highest, highest yeah. You know, for us, um, this is going to be um, interesting from a uh, search engine optimization, obviously doing the paid ads and um, using that as a way to attract leads is an important aspect of what we do. But more importantly, for compliance study, the biggest um, creator of interest and in leads uh, has been honestly the product itself, where we actually provide a free and open access to our product to anybody from anywhere. 
and from the other side, we provide reports that actually summarize the enforcement actions, the regulatory deadlines, and the updates from the agencies on a weekly basis for free to anybody who subscribes to them. So instead of subscribing to newsletters to talk about our achievements in the market and new product features that nobody asked for, we actually publish the content that's impacting these individuals for free to them so they can get a very clear understanding and taste of what it would be uh, using the product. And then we basically look at the more uh, sophisticated personalization customization features as the reason for uh, the large organizations to be attracted to compliance study. What that means is that once you've had a chance to look at those reports, look at the product, once you start a call with us subsequently to learn more about the product, you're not asking compliance study, who the hell are you? You're asking, actually asking more questions about personalization, customization, and getting much more specific about the use cases within your organization. Uh, and that's been a steady increase in terms of uh, subscriptions uh, to those reports. Of course, uh, the usual suspects of putting out relevant content, attending events, uh, and basically publishing a quarterly ebook around enforcement actions that uh, puts into perspective everything that just happened in the prior quarter. Um, so we think the proof is in the product. In other words, as opposed to talking about features, functions, strategy, buzzwords, it's about, look, this is what you're looking for. Here it is. Here's the advantage of using an uh, automated scalable solution. You can now start taking advantage of it. And typically that results in a much higher level of confidence in the uh, conversations we have with these individuals. Got it. Sounds to me that this is a product-led growth strategy. Would you would you agree? I would I would say um, it's a mix of product and content. Uh, where uh, you know you're looking at you're competing with a the status quo. You're looking at whether it's use of legacy solutions um, that they've been you know using or the use of Microsoft Excel um, manual approaches to data collection, normalization, classification. Um, task management, workflow, and reporting. And if you speak that language and you really talk about, uh, in fact, one of the most successful blog series we wrote to talk about your research was a day in the life of a compliance officer. And we had compliance officers ghostwrite the series. It was a three-part series. I wake up, have my coffee, and this is what I do uh, to the end of the, the next morning, rinse and repeat on changes that are coming our way. And we looked to analyze that step-by-step, step, looking at how automation and the use of solutions like compliance study can significantly reduce that compliance burden, reduce the operational cost, and increase the consistency and reliability of those processes that are being used specifically, in our case, for regulatory change management, which, by the way, didn't exist prior to, I would say, even as uh, early as seven, eight years ago, there was not a term that you would hear at regulated organizations. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to find a single reputable BFSI that doesn't have a regulatory change management strategy. So that's really uh, what we're trying to address is say, for that strategy, you need a solution. We offer that solution. I had to Google RCM before our conversation, <laughs> but, yeah. but I get it. Regulatory change management um, is a real thing. Yes. And I even checked out your one of your landing pages for, for that. Um, yeah, in fact, uh, I would tell you that the, the whole idea of this umbrella of automated solutions that help you monitor, track, and react to regulatory changes has led to the formation of a another buzzword that you're probably very familiar with called RecTech, technologies mm -hmm. that really address that. And we're very much a poster child of that uh, type of initiative. Um, it's one that 
very much makes sense. Like you have the approach you're using. One other thing I should mention to you is this focus on regulatory change management for an end user uh, has a good amount of consequences in terms of usability and the user interactions for these users. Whereas earlier they were kind of in the sea of compliance capabilities, 18 different uh, modules and each module with the multiple applications Regulatory change management is now getting its well-deserved focus so that the application does exactly what that group needs to do. Uh, and so it's much easier to onboard, much easier to learn, much easier to use on a self-service basis without a lot of hand-holding. And that's been very much the case um, for, I would say, good rec tech solutions and compliance study is one of them. Mm-hmm. So if we, if we were to map out a typical customer journey, I can see from your website that you really have you have two primary calls to action. One is try it now, and that's get get your hands on this product right now, and you can you can feel the value of it immediately. You can actually get get value immediately, but you're not going to get everything. And then there's a demo there's a demo button. Are most people beginning with that flow? They're they're going to just get a, a free version of it, which is going to be somewhat limited. They're going to experience it. They're going to see the value. And then book a demo. Is that that's exactly right? That's awesome. exactly right. Yeah, and we think okay. that's the right way to go. You don't want to have um, you know un- unnecessary conversation and chatter where the user hasn't seen what it is that you're about to offer them. Um, and I think that approach uh, makes for much more um, specific and and I would say fruitful conversations subsequent in, in a demo. Absolutely. What what is the typical time frame from a really qualified prospect getting their hands on the free version to deciding that it's time to take the next step and speak to someone. It's interesting. We recently did an analysis of our pipeline looking at where is that peak level of interest where uh, advocacy is built. And it's within the first month where we have the highest level of interest at the highest level in the organization um, where they've seen it, they know their problem. They've seen the solution we've offered as part of the basic edition as part of subsequent tailored demos. And at that point you have the peak of interest then it goes into the regular flow uh, that you would expect from any uh, enterprise organization in terms of uh, vendor assessment, budgeting, uh, potentially being proper part of a proper uh, RFP process. And those are uh, you know, typically from the point of um, start of engagement to the point of close, an average you know, enterprise um, organization adopting a solution like this could take five to six months. Yeah, I was going to even guess longer if it's a if it's a huge or a financial organization. So, how many how many salespeople do you have now? Yeah, we're a relatively small team. Uh, altogether, the company is roughly twenty five to thirty people, uh, and I would say probably uh, 30, 35 percent of that uh, represents sales, marketing, um, and customer support. Mm-hmm. And what are the, what is the approximate ratio of Free customers to paying customers? Um, that's an interesting question. I would say that uh, the vast majority of them are free users for the purposes that we just talked about. Um, we also have a good number of partners that use the product um, to build solutions um, that 2 plus 2 equals 5, whether they're GRC vendors or whether they provide um, premium regulatory content that is not published by a regulator, but is published by uh, sources that provide thought leadership, advice, uh, basically guidance around how to implement or deal with the regulation that was just published. And we're uh, having a good number of partners around that. 
And then, of course, um, even organizations that use our product as licensed customers, then they have other users that would then subsequently join and they take advantage of the free feature to see if, if, if the solution is applicable or usable for them, whether they're in audit, uh, risk management, in reporting, or even in IC, uh, ISIT or other lines of business, uh, they can mm -hmm. take advantage of the solution. So the ratio is quite favorable towards uh, free users for obvious reasons. Uh, but then ultimately, uh, we think that they can either continue using the free version, that's perfectly fine, or if the use case um, warrants them to take advantage of personalization, customized notifications, custom reports, alerts, um, uh, obligation analysis, um, workflow, and reporting capabilities, then they gravitate towards the uh, um, team and pro editions, which are our flagship products, the team edition. Got it. And you mentioned that the about at the 30-day mark seems to be the ideal point to convert a free user to paid. How do you communicate with your free, well, with your free customers, the free users in those first 30 days to try to help them get to that point? We very much have a uh, absolutely. We, we have a um, laid out um, set of um, communication that goes out specifically talking to them about the capabilities within the product, uh, whether it has to do with the command center that we created on the dashboard and the value of personalizing that to meet specific business units, uh, the timeline, the value of the workflow and the reporting and how it can assist them. And all of them are accompanied with um, purpose-built videos, uh, links to documentation that provide actual step-by-steps uh, in terms of what would the life of that user look like subsequent to that. And of course, then uh, the traditional follow-ups, having uh, making ourselves available in terms of answering any uh, specific questions or demonstrating the product on a much more tailored basis uh, to these individuals. So, for example, oh, I tried your product and I didn't find X, Y, Z. Okay, uh, here's a link on how you can get there. And if um, you're interested, we can do a tailored demo mm -hmm. to basically show this capability in 15 to 30, 30 minutes. One significant aspect of that has been the ability to add new content coverage in terms of regulatory coverage at a unprecedented rate. So during the trial of the user, typically, uh, we would go back and say, okay, you asked for regulations in this country, not the United States, or this uh, regulator, this specific type of document. For example, today we cover over a thousand agencies, over 3 million documents ranging over 25 countries, but that's not total coverage, global coverage. So you always have new regulatory sources that you have to bring in. So during the trial, we say, by the way, you know, you know that source you mentioned? Now it's on the product at no additional cost or professional services fees to you, something that they just do not get anywhere else. So that's become a very significant sales tool as well. So you're communicating the growth of the product while they're on the free plan. Exactly. Just to remind them what they're missing out on on a, on a regular basis. And also remind them that we're not putting a paywall in front of content, uh, that we're not going to be nickel and diming them in terms of, oh, you want these regulations from this organization of this document type across BSA ML, that's going to cost you a little bit different than if you wanted cybersecurity and privacy. This all you can eat, all jurisdictions at all times is a refreshing uh, differentiation that they get to experience. Yeah, simplified pricing. Is it on a per seat or a per user basis or is it per organization? It's um, uh, there's a platform license and then there's per user licenses on top of that. Yeah. Okay. That's so awesome. if you start to mm -hmm. if you start to detect that the number of users is growing on a free on a free trial or free plan account, 
Do you then proactively reach out as you see the engagement starting to spread within an organization? Do you proactively reach out at that point to try to convert them? That's very much um, more about finding out how we can help them. Uh, so is, it, is there a use case? Is there an application that uh, we can provide? Um, yes, absolutely. Then being able to reach out and make ourselves available. Do you want a deeper dive in any of these sections? Can we help uh, shed the light on how we deal with workflow? Oh, you've already made a multi-million dollar investment in a GRC solution. Can we show you how we seamlessly integrate with those solutions out of the box? Okay. And once once you have converted from free to paying customer, I, I presume also that if you can get that product in the hands of more people in the organization, um, that that's also good. Is there a is there a particular way that you are? trying to increase the lifetime value of your current customers by increasing the average seat count per, per account? Yeah, I think that uh, as rightfully it should be the case, the first six to eight months of usage of a solution like ours is, is uh, even though it's commercial product, even though it's licensed on a multi-year subscription basis, it's still getting your feet wet from a regulated organization. You're trying to see, does this work? And in parallel, many times, rightfully so, uh, companies continue to run the prior product that they were using for sometimes six months uh, to do a parallel side-by-side uh, -side analysis and then gradually start increasing um, the adoption within the organization, whether it's across different business units or um, number of users within a specific group. Okay. And when it comes to the discovery of this, I'm trying to imagine... I understand the chief compliance officer is most likely the decision maker who has budget, but do you often find also that there are other people who are going to be using the product on a more day-to-day -day basis that are more influential, more like of a bottom-up approach? Absolutely, yes. Um, yes. Their hands? Completely, yes. Uh, GC and CCO, like I said, uh, both of them are uh, the main individuals uh, that would have uh, the incentive and the you know, usage scenarios to take advantage of compliance.ai but members of the audit team, individuals that deal with uh, compliance risk, people who deal with reporting, um, and then the individuals who are recipients of these reports in terms of implementation and uh, compliance, uh, consulting group governance, uh, another aspect of it. And so little by little, the idea is to basically provide a solution that serves all those groups. Um, you know, and for that purpose, we have basically built rules, uh, role-based access and views that are very much specific to them. If I'm a CCO, I'm not necessarily looking at transactional uh, changes. I'm more interested in trend analysis, insights. How's my team doing keeping up with the backlog? How's their velocity? Uh, what's the volume of enforcement actions that have been issued by whom across what type of violations? So those types of trends appear, but more from a change manager, I'm not interested in any of that. I want to know what is it I need to do today? And so we build task views and views in terms of uh, calendar items and deadlines and the dependencies of the tasks. And if I'm a person who's responsible for audit, I'm not interested in any of that. I'm interested in what's happened before, during, and after the rulemaking process at this organization. So we have views specifically for those individuals as well. How, how proactive are you in communicating enforcement cases in order to kind of stimulate market demand? Um, it is the most successful report that compliance that generates. It's because the highest number of subscribers. Uh, and it is interesting because it's not just interesting to the compliance crowd. It also resonates with the business users within the organizations. We see that on LinkedIn. We see that on 
on our campaigns. We see it at events. We see it in the um, traffic that we get through SEO and through um, basically search engines. Um, and enforcement actions are a big sign of everything, right? So what do, what do you don't what are you trying to do with your compliance program? You're trying to mitigate risk. You're trying to manage risk. You're trying to lower risk. And why are you doing that? Well, for reputational purposes, financial, and of course, then, uh, you know, a big aspect of that has to do with enforcement action. So it makes very much sense to look at um, who's being, you know, fined, what were the penalties, um, who were the respondents, and what were the violations, and from which agencies across which jurisdictions. It's an ongoing um, aspect of uh, the rulemaking that. Um, is not necessarily always monitored by compliance. It's sometimes monitored by um, for horizon scanning, sometimes through different lines of defense um, and uh, AML, BSA, fraud prevention, organizations that deal with sanction, uh, parts of the organization that deal with sanctions. Um, so it's got multiple consumers. And as I said, um, one of the most important reports we generate and highest number of subscribers to it. So it's very much a um, used as a, a tool to advocate, hey, this this is what the type of intelligence, the type of insight that you need on an ongoing basis. And you don't want to build this yourself. You don't want to be gathering this information manually. And you don't want to be in the business of um, looking at this on a transactional basis. You want to get the trends and insights that help you make sound decisions over a weekly, monthly, or quarterly basis. Uh-huh. I'm on your website now. I'm looking at the, in the resources section. It looks like there are three types of regulatory activity reports, an agency report, an enforcement action report, regulatory news and deadlines. And it looks like this is these are all weekly, all That's three. Right. Is that right? That's so correct. you must, uh, it sounds like there's a massive content uh, marketing effort going on over there. How do you how do you maintain all, all this, uh, this type of content? We have a team specifically for that. In fact, if you look at the top of the website, there's a uh, regulatory tracker. Uh, we think we thought of turning that into a product all by itself, very similar to a stock exchange tracker. We offer a regulatory tracker that keeps track and provides you with the insights. Think of that being available on your um, uh, site um, as end users. And by the way, you mentioned weekly. I would tell you that uh, on the personalized uh, side of things for the users who are much more paranoid, uh, we have uh, the availability of hourly digests that get published um, on that near real-time access to this information. So it gives you more time to plan, be responsive, and not look like a deer in a headlight when somebody asks you about it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is, Now I'm, I'm really paying attention to this. It's like a ticker that's moving that's right. across the top. Uh, yeah, we, we need to do a much better job of promoting that if you missed it, and a lot of people do miss it. Um, this has uh, been a work in progress for many years, <laughs> and uh, I think that ability to make that available as a ticker, just like you have with you know uh, the news organizations, you're working, you're looking at something, and you also see the ticker, and something can catch your eye uh, in terms of volume, in terms of pace, velocity, in terms of uh, changes that are important to that organization, be able to use that as a ticker, and then be able to interact with it by simply clicking on any of those items. Uh, is very much something we've now achieved and delivered on the website. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Some of these are pretty alarming. I mean, the 194 actions taken in the U.S. in the last 30 days, and uh, wait, it's coming back around now. I just want to see this number, um, but it's decreasing by 23 percent. But still, the enforcement is 69 million, 69.6 million dollars 
of fines, I guess that's the value of fines issued over the last 30 days. That's that's pretty alarming. When I click on any of these links, I'm getting I'm getting a pop-up to identify my role, email, and phone number. I guess phone number is optional. And where do these leads that's go right. when you get when you get so you're getting a title, an email address, and a sometimes a phone number? What is the next step in the that's marketing? Right. That's right. We, didn't, we didn't wait. That's right. We then wait for them to um, use the solution, uh, come back with any questions. We then nudge and follow up and ask them how we can help um, with the, ask them if they have practices around regulatory change management and how we can assist in that follow up from okay. there. Do they get any particular remarketing campaigns based on the role that they've selected there? Um, we do. Absolutely. We have role-based, um, essentially, uh, series of messaging that are tar- targeted specifically to both the segment of the market uh, that that individual company is operating in, whether it's asset management, banking, fintech, insurance, or advisory. And then there's another aspect, which is jurisdiction. Where do they operate? And lastly, the size of the organization. So the role of the individual then determines the type of um, messaging and the type of fit capabilities. Remember the views I was talking about, you can now focus on that. And this is something very much we introduced in 2020 to stop um, getting back to users with bland messages and offer them very much focused responses that have to do with their line of business and their duties within the organization. Got it. Yeah. Because even the try it now call to action, even that could be a bit overwhelming if I'm not really sure. Um, maybe I need a specific piece of this, but if you tailor that to the role, I think it's a great idea to capture the role as the first step in that journey. So that then you can customize, you can customize all the, the nurturing and remarketing content from that point Absolutely. forward. Yeah. Well, this is this has all been great. How, how uh, what is what is the future of compliance AI? I mean, where are you in terms of your growth journey? How much bigger do you want this? Um, to get? We're very much uh, a fourth year now, um, hiring like uh, crazy. My partner, co-founder, calls me chief recruiting officer, um, looking to hire more. Uh, in sales and marketing and R&D, um, this, uh, you know, we had our best quarter to date, the last quarter in 2020, uh, despite COVID. Uh, so very much growth mode, um, being more responsive and specific, uh, all ears to the um, requests from our users. We're going to form a cons- customer council uh, come May of this year uh, and be much more uh, specific about and much more um, systematic about responding to their requirements. Mm-hmm. Given the, given your total addressable market, let's say, and your current penetration, how much more? The, we are very much at the tip of the iceberg, yeah, okay. uh, from that perspective, absolutely. Okay, well, that's exciting. So are you, planning on, are you planning on getting to a point where you can raise capital and then accelerate the growth, or uh, where are We're you? We're probably going to go for our next round of financing towards the end of the year. That's right. We're going to okay. go for our Series B. To date, we've raised close to $18 million, and we're going to go for our next round mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of this year. That's right. Yeah, excellent. Well, fantastic. Well, that's a, that's quite a story, uh, Kayvon, and I think you're still in the early part of it. Um, given, um, I don't think any of these regulations are going away anytime soon, which means that uh, this market is here for quite some time to come, and it's only getting more complex, it seems it's like. It's getting more complex, and uh, the new administration, I think, is uh, as you see, is rolling back um, a lot of yeah. changes. Um, either way, change is important to these organizations, and we're here to help them. Yeah. yeah. I, I guess Joe Biden still has a relatively fresh memory of the financial crisis when he was – because he was you know, sitting shotgun back then. 
And um, we, I think it's important not to, not to forget uh, that was only 10 years ago or 11 years ago. And it could happen again That's if we're um, not careful. That's yeah. Um, yeah, excellent. Well, Kaivan, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to, that you'd like our audience yeah, to I think we've covered it pretty well. It was a pleasure talking to you, Paris. Yeah, same here. Do you have any questions for me before we wrap up? No, no, I think we've, uh, we, uh, I think we've uh, looked at that before. Look forward to uh, seeing how that comes out and if uh, your viewers uh, uh, can take advantage of it, it would be great. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks for, for the chat. I really enjoyed it, Kevin. Have a great day. Same to you. Have a fantastic day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.